welcome guys and gals to the man talk show i'm connor beaton the host and founder of man talks this podcast brings together the best thought leaders teachers and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life love and business now joining me today is Mr. James Clear, who is an author, a speaker, and entrepreneur. More than 400,000 people subscribe to his newsletter on habits and performance. His work has been used by teams in the NFL, in the NBA, and the Major League Baseball, uh, MLB, as well as leaders of Fortune 500 companies. His new book, Atomic Habits, which we're going to talk about today, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results, is out now and is absolutely phenomenal. I have to say, I have read and done a lot of research about habits, but after reading this book and and speaking with James, there is something about the format of which he's put this together that really resonates. It just makes a ton, a ton, a ton of sense, and it's actionable. And it's clear and it's concrete. And I feel like oftentimes with habits, things can be so complicated. You know, it's like we can we can get stuck hating the habits that we have and want to change them and it seems overwhelming. But James has really built a, a great framework for what habits actually are, what creates them, and how we can more effectively and efficiently create better habits for our life in our environment, in our behaviors, um, in, in so many different ways. And so it's really, uh, this is really a, a great interview on many levels for that reason. Uh, just a quick reminder for all the guys that are out there, head on over to the Facebook group and join the Man Talks community. Uh, don't forget to share this episode. This is a really solid episode on habits. And we all know someone that is struggling or wanting to work on their habits in a, in a better way, whether it's their health or their fitness or their finances or their business, and they're wanting to implement better habits. And so if you know just one person that you think would benefit from this episode, definitely share it with them. Man it forward goes a long way. And uh, and just a quick reminder that we have the men's weekend uh, coming up in May. We have only a few spots left for a few great men. So if you're interested in that or you know someone who would be a good fit, who's also interested in it, uh, send them on over to mantox.com and you can apply right there to uh, for the men's weekend. And you'll have a quick call with me to see if you're a good fit and and I uh, can share some more insight on the weekend. So it's going to be an incredible weekend out in the Sunshine Coast of British Columbia. And we're going to be doing some deep men's work around uh, finding purpose and being able to understand the masculine feminine dynamics, uh, how to have better intimacy with your partner, how to communicate better with the feminine, uh, and 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 basically how to have a little bit more direction uh, in life if, if that's something that you're looking to work on. So a lot of the guys that are coming to the weekend are men who really are are working on uh, finding equilibrium in their life, whether that's trying to balance work and family or partner or finances uh, while having fun. So it's it's going to be an incredible weekend with a great group of like-minded guys. So if that sounds interesting to you, then definitely check it out, mantalks.com, Men's Work Weekend. I hope to see you there. So Without any further delay, I want to bring on James, um, but I do want to say definitely grab a pen and paper because uh, there's some good ones good ones in here, some really good lessons in here that you can take away and implement. And what I would encourage 
is that if something stood out for you in this podcast episode, to just take one thing and implement that one thing. And one of the things that James talks about is starting small. So that would be a good way to begin. So let's begin with James Clear. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be talking to you. Yeah, likewise. It's it's so funny. We seem to have a lot of people uh, who, who seem to like run in, in similar circles. And I've seen, you know, when your book came out, so many of the people that I know were just like loving, loving this thing. So I'm I'm really excited to have you on the on the show today and dig into habits and you know what makes them, what breaks them, and and you know why we struggle with them so much. <laughs> yeah, great. I'm excited to talk about it too. I'm glad that uh, glad your friends were enjoying it. That's uh, it's always fun to see uh, people reading the book and uh, finding it useful. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, let's. Uh, I, I got to start with the with the question that I ask all all our guests, which is, tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Well, you know, I I cover the story a little bit in the beginning of the book as well. Um, when I was a sophomore in high school, I had a very serious injury. Uh, I was hit in the face with a baseball bat, and um, I didn't realize the moment that it happened how serious it was. You know, I was sort of I was still answering questions for a few minutes and kind of stumbled my way into the nurse's office. Um, it happened outside the back of my high school, and so I went back into the school and answered questions there. But um, it pretty quickly, it became clear that it was a very serious injury. So I, you know, I started struggling with basic functions like swallowing and breathing. I had to get, uh, you know, the ambulance came, took me to the hospital. I lost consciousness before I got there and then, uh, continued to go downhill. Once I was there, I had multiple seizures. I ended up having to be air cared to a larger hospital that could handle uh, the situation. Ultimately, uh, I needed surgery because I had broken uh, my nose, the bone behind my nose. I'd fractured both eye sockets and uh, I was dealing with these seizures. So I was unstable uh, and, you know, they couldn't take me into the operating room. And so uh, at that point, they had decided to place me into this medically induced coma. And so for the the next 24 hours, I was placed into that. My, you know, priest comes to talk to my parents at the hospital. It was just a very uh, dark and serious uh, day or so. And um, thankfully, the next morning, I had stabilized to the point where they felt comfortable releasing me from the coma. And uh, as I regained consciousness, I uh, kind of the process of healing began. You know, it's like the first day. I, uh, I couldn't smell. I didn't have, I felt like I'd lost my sense of smell. And part of it was that the breaking of my nose and all this, um, blood and, uh, other <clears throat> stuff was caught up in my, um, in my sinuses. And so one of the nurses said, well, why don't you blow your nose and see if you can smell this apple juice box? And so I did that. Uh, but when I blew my nose, uh, the sense of smell did return. Uh, but I forced air through the cracks in my shattered eye socket. And uh, that ultimately ended up pushing my left eye out. Uh, so now my eye is kind of like dangling out of my socket. I've got this broken nose, these other broken bones. And uh, it ended up being more than a week before I was actually able to be taken in for surgery. At that point, my nose had reset in the broken position. So they had to break it again uh, to get it back into place which was actually the most painful part of the whole experience. And then, um, and then finally, once, you know, once the surgeries were done, uh, and, uh, the doctors told me my eye would go back into place, but they just didn't know how long it would take. And, um, so over the course of a month or so, uh, gradually kind of, uh, the air released from behind it and seeped back into the socket. And that first physical therapy lesson, I was just practicing basic motor patterns. I was just trying to, you know, walk in a straight line and 
do very, very basic stuff. And the, the punchline of the story or the way that it, it ties in with the work that I do now is that my hand was forced at that time. I couldn't, I couldn't just flip a switch and have some radical transformation, you know, and get back to where I was before. So I had to start small. I had to just work on these little habits of physical therapy. I started doing, you know, once I began getting better after a few months, I, I started doing little habits at home. You know, I would uh, focus on making my bed each day or preparing for class and, you know, studying for an hour or something. And I began going to the gym uh, three days a week. And none of these things were big things by themselves, right? Like there's nothing earth shattering about any of that, but uh, it gave me a sense of control over my life. Something I felt like I had lost and, uh, and slowly, gradually I began to make strides and um, baseball, you know, was not only the cause for my injury. It was also a really important part of my life at that time. My dad had played professionally. Uh, he had played in the minor leagues for the St. Louis Cardinals. And I you know, had these dreams of uh, going on and playing as well. And, um, my high school career was, you know, kind of taken away from me and, uh, due to this injury. And so ultimately I, I got cut from the high school team the, the next year. Uh, and then my senior season, though, I barely played, I got like 11 innings of varsity baseball in total. And then, um, ultimately I was able to continue building these small habits, making these little improvements each day. And I did end up making a college team. Uh, didn't start my first year. My second season, I did end up starting. Uh, my third season, I was captain. And then my fourth year, I ended up uh, becoming an academic All-American. And so the, the gap between being injured and be getting making my way back on the field and becoming an academic All-American, there's like five years in there in between those things happening, five or six years. And the only way that I was able to make that progression was by finding little ways to get better each day. Now I didn't have a language for it at the time. I wouldn't have said, Oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better. Um, but that's effectively what I was doing. And so in a lot of ways, the topics that I write about now habits, behavior change, continuous improvement, peak performance, I had to kind of live out those philosophies first. So I, I came into it through an experience and then only afterward did I start to learn the science of behavior change and start to write about some of these other stories and philosophies. And I don't really talk much about my own story. You know, we're kicking it off with it here. I, I don't really write about it uh, in um, on my website or in the book very much. I just kind of have it mentioned in the introduction, but I did learn it through my own experience first. And then, uh, and then I've spent the remainder of my career kind of diving into the science and the research behind those topics as well. Man, oh man, what a journey that, that must've been, especially at such a young sort of formative age, you know, you're, you're in athletics and, and you sort of have those dreams and ambitions. And I can imagine that that would really form, I mean, it would, it would really, it's, it's sort of like a make or break moment, you know, in, in many ways where you could have chosen to, to, to like not, not pursue, you know, your dreams, not pursue the things that you ultimately wanted and, and not put these, these habits in place and rituals in place so that you could, you know, be productive again, but rather let that sort of tear you down and and be the thing that sort of you know sent sent you into victimhood which you know unfortunately it happens to a lot of people and uh, where they where they kind of get stuck in that in that moment in that space i'm curious did you have like some of the symptoms like did you ever struggle with concussions because i think that's something that a lot of a lot of people experience is having to deal with with concussion symptoms after something like that yeah um you know, it was such a severe injury. Obviously, I had a terrible experience with concussion uh, during that time over that summer. Thankfully, uh, I have made a full recovery. 
And uh, although I did continue to play college athletics and uh, play baseball, I didn't play uh, many like high contact sports. So, you know, I only played football for one season and it was before I experienced this injury. Um, I did play basketball and swam for many years, but, uh, you know, I, I had one head injury in basketball, but again, that was before this injury. So uh, I think I was able to avoid some of the long-term consequences of that. And hopefully, you know, knock on wood that I'll be able to continue to, uh, keep my head in good shape. Um, since then it's so hard to know whether things would be different or not, uh, without the injury, you know, like I, you know, would I get headaches less? I don't know. I'm not, you know, it's like so hard to, to know that. Um, did I lose a few IQ points, um, or gain a few? <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, so I, I, I don't know exactly, um, what the, the long-term impacts have been, but overall, I think I was very fortunate to make a full recovery and I don't notice it impacting my day-to-day life significantly. So I, I feel like, um, in that sense, I, I made it out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's good insight, right? I think a lot of people that experience trauma like that, especially like head trauma like that can, can walk away with, with sort of like long lasting impacts. I know my, my little brother has had multiple concussions because of lacrosse and it's, you know, it's something that he's really sort of struggled with. And I've known a few guys that have dealt with, with mild to severe concussions that, that it's just sort of shaped them and, and got them out of their, you know, got them out of their routines, got them out of their habits and and really is sort of like this, this perpetual thing that, that comes up constantly. So, but it's, I mean, what's interesting to me is like, what was the, what was the mentality, you know, in that sort of make or break moment? Like, I know that you were younger, so maybe there, maybe there wasn't sort of like this strategic plan in place, but what was the mentality that, that, that pulled you out of that? Cause I can't imagine you were in a positive <laughs> sort of like upbeat space. Like, yeah, my face just got smashed. Then, you know, my eye, you know, my eye sockets are broken. My nose is broken. This is exciting. I, I would imagine it was, it's probably a little bit darker. So how did you, like, how did you sort of muster up the courage to, to charge forward after that and, and start to create some of the habits and rituals uh, and, and specifically around the mind frame that pulled you out of that space? Yeah, I looking back on it, I do think the mindset part was probably the most important, maybe the toughest part. Um, there certainly wasn't a plan, uh, which you, you mentioned or asked about. Um, I, you know, I just kind of every now and then you kind of, you know, there's that quote like everybody has a plan to get punched in the mouth. I kind of like literally experienced that. <laughs> in a sense. But um, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a, a bigger plan. I mean, one of the first things I said when I woke up uh, or kind of like regained consciousness was I never asked for this to happen, you know, which I think is something that a lot of people feel when uh, dealing with something like that, that, you know, you, what did I do to deserve this? Right. Like why, why me? That kind of thing. But, um, you know, and I, I was upset about it for a little while, but I, I got over it fairly quickly within a few days. I was, I think there were a few factors that contributed to this. So, you know, one, I, you know, and I, um, again, I, it's like uncomfortable for me to talk about myself, but I, I just in the context of this, I guess I'll bring it up, but, um, I'm comfortable with who I am. Like I, I like myself, um, in the sense that I have, um, you know, I feel good about who I am or what my self-esteem is and that kind of thing. And I, I think that counts for a lot, you know, to like be a good friend to yourself, um, to be happy with who you are. And, um, so that, uh, while I was upset with how the situation had played out, um, I didn't have this like self-loathing or anything that I had to get over. And so I think that that helped a little bit. 
Um, I'm kind of naturally, uh, I think a more positive person, or I would prefer to be like, as another example, totally unrelated area of life. I've been told that I have a fairly optimistic view of time. So like, you know, if I've got an hour, I'm like, well, let's fit as much as we possibly can into this. Like, you know, other people are like, well, I got plenty of time. Let me leave 15 minutes early and get to this appointment and not have to rush. And I'm like, oh, perfect. 15 minutes for me to do even more. Um, so sometimes that means I'm uh, running late. But my point is that my thought, or, uh, and generally speaking for life, I'm like, well, how can, how can I get the most out of this, right? How can I make this the, uh, how can I get the biggest positive spin out of this experience? And so, you know, this was certainly a, a negative uh, situation I was dealing with, but I, I kind of brought that same philosophy to it. And then I, my question, when I think back on that is, why did I feel that way? Why was I able to approach a negative situation in a positive way? Was it just genetic and like that's kind of what my personality is or did i learn it somewhere and i think certainly i had that type of approach to life modeled for me uh, from my grandparents my parents um you know I, I had a lot of support with people who were around me i mean we didn't you know I, I didn't grow up wealthy um or you know with like all kinds of advantages or anything but uh but i did have one big advantage which is i had a family who loved me and cared about me and um, especially when you're dealing with uh, a situation like that, that counts for a lot. And uh, so I think the combination of my general positive attitude and uh, kind of uh, self-esteem and the social support that was around me, those were probably the two big factors that really helped me get over that hard period. Nice. Wonderful, man. I, I appreciate you breaking that down and, and just shedding some light on it. It's, it's interesting. You know, I read, I remember probably like one of the most uh, influential books and uh on 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 leadership i can't uh, that i that i read a while back talked about the importance of something called relentless optimism and that's kind of what i hear in you mm -hmm. and you know it, like within your story is sort of buried this this sense of relentless relentless optimism and how it just sort of shaped your your con like the context and the narrative that you that you use and the lens that you viewed the world through of just like okay this this happened and it's shitty and it sucks and i don't you know i don't particularly like it like why did this happen to me i didn't i didn't ask for this but but now that it's here um how do i approach this with an optimism assuming that that not that like naively that everything's gonna be okay but how do i specifically show up with optimism in every single situation, you know, whether that's going to physio or, you know, doing this like rehabil rehabilitation. And so I think that's an incredible lesson that, that, you know, people can learn. So, yeah, let me um, just like add something to that. Cause I, I feel like you're right. I like that phrase, relentless, relentless optimism. Um, but like, I, I mean, I think we all know people that it's almost like they're too bubbly. They're too positive. You're like, it's yeah. a little weird or annoying, you know? Um, and uh, I don't, uh, so that part of it like doesn't resonate with me, but the part that does, the part that I like about that phrase is you can tell any story to yourself about your life, right? Like if you wanted, you could sit down right now with a piece of paper and on one side, you could write the, uh, ju just using facts, only the facts, write the most negative version of your life story possible. And then on the other side, you, again, only using facts could write the most positive version of your life story possible. And both of those stories are true. They're both only based in fact. But my thought is like, well, if we're going to be telling the story anyway, might as well base it on the positive one. 
right? Like, I, I don't know why, I don't see what you gain by being somber or downtrodden or worrisome about, and focusing on those facts when you can just as easily focus on the other set that, uh, that is also true. And so that's kind of more of my style is like, look, I'm not, I'm not looking to twist and bend the world into something that's not, I'm like, I'm not looking to like be fake positive or talk about how everything is like rosy and wonderful, uh, when it isn't, but if I'm going to be uh, focusing on a set of facts anyway, I might as well focus on the story that benefits me rather than the one that holds me back. Yeah. Yeah. I like that approach. I, I usually cr- like use the distinction between relentless optimism and naive optimism because there mm-hmm. is, there is a naive optimism, you know, it's that super like, it's kind of like, I don't, I don't remember. I don't know if you remember the book, the secret that came out and it got a lot of flack because the right. whole, the whole concept was sort of just like, just like if you believe it, you can achieve it and just sort of like think good things and those good things will happen. But, but you know, it sort of missed out on telling people like, you got to go do something about it. Like you actually have to perceive reality as it is and, and turn that reality as much as you can into something that, that you create action on. And I think that's really the difference between naive and relentless, relentless optimism is that oftentimes with naive optimism, we, we don't take those actions, you know, like we actually don't go do the work that we need to do or, you know, have the tough conversations that we need to have or implement the habits that we need to have because we get stuck just sort of saying like, oh, it'll, it'll work out, right? Like it'll just magically work out. And, um, yeah, so I, I I love I love that, and I love your your idea of like writing down the facts on both sides, and then yeah. and then really I like, like that distinction. You know, it's kind of like a the difference between a passive form of optimism and an active form. Yeah, I'd like rather take the active form and do the work in addition to seeing the world as a good place, and you know, the, focusing on the positive side. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of the thing that that stood out to me about your story, and 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 maybe you know, it's it's a good segue into into habits because I would imagine that that sense of of active optimism, as you said, is a is sort of a vehicle and a tool for you to put some of these really great pieces in into place. So, so let's shift a little bit into habits and, and start talking about that because I think it's a, it's a really important topic. But from some of the work that you've done and some of the research that you've done, and and just from your personal experience, what are some of the myths and sort of falsehoods that you've seen and heard over the years about habits? Yeah. So, I, I mean, just to set the stage here, so I've been I've been writing about habits and behavior change um, at jamesclear.com for about six years now. Uh, I wrote two articles a week for the first three years. And then um, I spent the last three years working on uh, Atomic Habits, which is the, the book and kind of like most comprehensive thinking that I have on, on the subject right now. And so throughout those, uh, those five or six years, I've come across a lot of you know, myths or misconceptions or common um, just kind of errors and mistakes in thinking or the way that we approach it. I would say you know, the most common question that I get is how long does it take to build a, a new habit? And you see all kinds of things, right? It takes 30 days, takes 66 days, takes, you know, whatever, 21 days. There was one study that revealed that about on average, it took about 66 days to build a habit. But the, the range in that study was quite wide. You know, it was like for something easy, like drinking a glass of water, it was maybe a few weeks. And for uh, something more difficult, like going for a run after work every day, uh, it was, you know, seven or eight months. So I don't really know how useful that number is, but I I think the reason I bring it up here as an answer to your question is that the misconception with that question or the myth is that when you're asking how long does it take to build a new habit, there's kind of this underlying assumption of, well, how long until it's easy, 
right? Or like how long until I don't have to put effort in anymore? Um, how long until this is done? And I think that the honest answer to how long does it build a habit is forever, because once you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. And that, uh, that misconception is sort of central to my philosophy of building better habits, which is that a habit is a lifestyle to be lived, not a finish line to be crossed. And so if you can embrace it in that way, it changes the way that you approach the problem because you think, oh, okay, this is a lifestyle. This is like something I'm going to be doing for the rest of time. Now I need to be looking for small, sustainable changes, things that aren't intimidating or threatening, something I can actually do and stick to each day. And uh, so I think that that approach and philosophy not only upends that common misconception, but also gives you like a more clear path forward. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I like that. And I like that you addressed the 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 time frame in which most people, you know, sort of perceive that we should be able to create these habits. Uh, and I like the distinction and the, the sort of approach of shifting it into a more long-term viewpoint of something that is going to shift your sort of daily way of being uh, on a consistent basis rather than just saying like, okay, after 30 days <laughs> of doing this, I'll, I'll be able to set it and forget it. Do we ever get to that point? Like with habits, do we ever get to that point where we just don't really have to worry about it at all? Well, so two things to say here. I mean, the first thing is 30 with, with regards to the time frame, 30 days can pass and you can do something once or you could do it a thousand times, right? And so habits, the brain, the reason that habits exist is that your brain creates automatic solutions to recurring problems that you face. So for example, you put your shoe on every morning and each time that you put your shoe on, the context is relatively similar. It might be a different colored shoe. The shoe strings might look a little bit different. Maybe sometimes there's a rug under your foot and other times it's a wood floor or whatever. But the context is very similar. And your brain learns, hey, when I'm looking at this context of a shoe on my foot, then it's time to tie the shoe. And the first time that you tie your shoe, it takes effort. And you think carefully about how to loop the strings around and how to tie the knot. But after you've done it 500 or 1,000 or 5,000 times, well, now you can do it without thinking. Your brain has gained fluidity and speed and ability um, through that repetition. And so you can tie your shoe while you're having a conversation with your spouse or while you're thinking about your to-do list for the day or listening to a podcast or whatever. And um, so the purpose of habits is that they allow you to accomplish solutions to the problems that you face with less energy and less effort than before. And so, you know, putting your shoe on is a small problem that you face each day. Uh, there are all kinds of others that you face throughout your day and your brain is just automating whatever solutions it can. So habits serve a really important purpose in life. And technically speaking, yes, you do get to a point where you can pretty much do these things on autopilot. So you don't have to think about tying your shoe or brushing your teeth or unplugging the toaster after each use. And it's not just behaviors. It's also, you know, your uh, habits of thought and habits of action. So things like, you know, you may not notice that you apologize every time before you ask a question. Oh, I'm sorry, but, you know, whatever. Or you may not notice that you cover your mouth before you laugh or that you fall into a, an overthinking spiral or some uh, like worrisome anxiety whenever, you know, something occurs, your boss sends you an email or something like that. So these habits of thinking and habits of action, they're these solutions that your brain automates to the, the, problems that you solve, uh, the problems that you face in a recurring fashion. Now, your brain is just looking to automate that solution in the moment. It's looking to resolve the problem in an immediate fashion. 
we, we're capable of thinking about the long-term consequences, but a lot of the time we don't. Uh, we, we overvalue the immediate outcome rather than the ultimate outcome. And so this is why, for example, you may come home from work each day and you feel stressed and exhausted. And that's a problem that your brain is looking to solve. So one person might solve that problem by getting in the habit of playing video games for an hour. Another person might solve it by watching Netflix for two hours. A third person might solve it by going for a run for 20 minutes. And your brain, different habits can solve the same problem. Uh, but the, the one that you automate, the one that you fall into is kind of the one that you start to favor. And so you can recondition your brain to like substitute a new habits. So you can swap that video game habit for the running habit, for example. Uh, and I talk about all the different ways to, to do that in the book. But my point here is that whether a habit is good or bad, either way, it's solving a problem that you're facing. And that's why your brain uses it and relies on it and calls on it when the context and situation are appropriate. And uh, with enough practice, yes, they can become more or less automatic, but I still think it's more productive to think about your habits as a lifestyle that you're living rather than this like, oh, let me do this sprint and then it'll just be easy. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I like that because it's almost like all of these habits combined really create our lifestyle anyway, you know, like creates and dictates how our daily lives actually unfold with work, with the kids, with, you know, our health and fitness routines, with our mental patterns. You you actually said something really interesting before. It, it actually sounded like it should be like the tagline or slogan for what habits are. Uh, it was something along the lines of like habits are uh, structures or, or things that help us reduce energy. Can you, can you, do you, do you remember what you said? Yeah. Habits allow you to uh, solve the problems of life with less energy and effort than required before, right? They, they allow you to de design and develop and implement a solution to the problems that you face, but without the same amount of effort. So interesting because it's, it's almost like the brain replicating itself in your external world, you know, like how, from my limited understanding of how the brain actually works, it's, it's constantly looking for this, this sort of like easiest and, and like neural pathway, the, the path of le least resistance and setting up systems within the brain, like the default mode network, where it can just sort of take care of things automatically without us necessarily having to think, quote unquote, think about it in a conscious sense. And so in that way, maybe just segueing a little bit, what, what parts of, of the, the brain, and I'm not too sure how much of this you can, you, you can speak to or want to speak to, but, but how important does the brain come into or how, how important is the brain when it comes to creating new habits and, and what parts of it actually play into that, that we, that we might need to know about? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the brain is the structure that, that automates your habits, but it's a very, um, and something that you, you mentioned just a, a minute ago about like, Oh, it's kind of like the brain replicating itself in the physical world or whatever it is useful. And this is kind of part of my overall philosophy, I think. To, to think about the process of building habits as an overall system. So the, the brain plays a, you know, a crucial role in that, of course. Uh, but your habits are tied to context and to situations. And so it's, it's almost like you're the, the habits that your brain forms are almost like a memory of the solution that worked in the past. You know, it's like you sit down and put your shoe on and your brain remembers how you tied that knot before and how that, what that solution looked like. And so seeing the shoe, which is this thing in the external world, is the thing that sparks the memory of the habit to employ or the solution to utilize in that situation. 
And, uh, and that's true, you know, all throughout the world. So your, your habits are tied as much to the external world as they are to your internal mind. Um, there you're, you learn which habits belong in which context. And I'll come back to your question about the brain in just a second, but as a side note, this is an interesting, an interesting aside about habits, which is that it's often easier to build a new habit in a new environment because you don't have all those preconceived notions, all the previous context and memories to overcome. So for example, you know, if you, uh, if your couch in your living room is where you eat a bowl of ice cream and watch Netflix for an hour each night, then the more that you do that, the more you learn, your brain learns, Oh, the couch is where I do this, where I eat ice cream and watch Netflix. And then let's say that, you know, one day you get motivated and you think, all right, I want to build the habit of reading rather than watching TV. And so you come home that night and you sit down on the couch and you try to start reading, open up the book, but without even really knowing it, you may not even consciously say it. You're kind of being pulled toward grabbing the remote and turning Netflix on because that's what your brain associates with that context. And so it can be effective to pick a different room, for example, to, to build your reading habit in, or maybe a different location. Maybe you choose like a coffee shop or a park that's near your office that you don't usually go to. So you don't have anything associated with it. And that becomes the reading coffee shop. And when you walk in, you turn off your phone and you open up a book and you read for 30 minutes. Um, and it becomes the place where that habit lives. But even if you can't do that, it can be helpful to like, say you buy a new chair uh, and you place it in the corner of the living room and that becomes the reading chair. And the only thing that happens there is you open up a book and you read. So the couch can still be the place where that Netflix and ice cream habit lives and the chair can be the place where the reading habit lives. And the more that your context is clearly delineated like that, the easier it becomes for your brain to tie a particular habit with that area. So in that sense, your, your brain and the external world are very inextricably linked uh, when it comes to assigning habits to different areas. As far as your question about the regions of the brain that are involved, there are a variety. Uh, so, you know, it's two of the things that get brought up the most when people talk about habits, uh, the basal ganglia is sort of the region of the brain's kind of golf, soul, golf ball sized lump that's deep within the brain which is, it takes over a lot of the automated processes. Uh, so once you have repeated a habit enough times for it to be automatic, the basal ganglia kind of plays a key role in running that system, running that process. The other thing that's mentioned often when it comes to habits is dopamine. Uh, and there are a variety of dopamine centers and regions throughout the brain. Uh, dopamine circulates throughout the brain. So it's, you know, it's not confined to just one space. There also are a variety of, um, of uh, different hormones and signaling pathways that are used that don't involve dopamine. But the key reason that dopamine is brought up and the, the key interesting part when it comes to habits is that uh, as dopamine, the first time you do something, so let's say the first time you eat a bar of chocolate, you don't know what to expect. So dopamine is just kind of at a baseline level. And then you eat, take that bite of chocolate and it's really enjoyable and pleasurable. And so dopamine spikes. Well, your brain learns that. So spikes of dopamine help mark experiences in your life. And they tell you, oh, this was pleasurable. This was good. You should remember this for next time. And so the next time around, you walk into a kitchen and you see a little chocolate bar on the counter. And now you remember, oh, that was tasty last time. And so once a habit is formed, once you know what to expect from an experience, that spike in dopamine moves up in time. So now actually you get a spike of dopamine before you bite the chocolate bar, not after. 
And so that spike that comes before, that spike that comes in anticipation of what is to come, that's actually the thing that helps motivate you to act. Uh, again, it's marking that experience. It's saying, hey, of all the things that you can see in this kitchen right now, the chocolate bar is the interesting one. So go walk over to that and take a bite, right? It's, it's motivating you to move. And uh, there have been all kinds of interesting studies that have uh, shown this. Like there was one that showed uh, white powder to cocaine addicts, but they only were shown the powder for 33 milliseconds, which is actually faster than you can consciously register. And yet still dopamine spiked in anticipation. And so, uh, you know, and that spike is what leads to this feeling of a craving or an urge. Um, and uh, anyway, so those are, those are all key parts of the process uh, of habit formation in the brain. The last thing that I'll say on that is anytime someone talks about one region of the brain being involved in habits or in, in anything, really, uh, it's an oversimplification. And imagine, for example, that I were to ask you, how do you pick up an apple off of a table, right? Like, what is the key region involved in that? And you say, well, I'm bending my arm. So maybe the key region involved is my bicep. And then so, you know, this scientist or person goes on and on about how the bicep is crucial for picking up apples off the table. But of course, you know, you're using all the other muscles in your arm as well. And you're also using your eyes. And in order to reach for the apple and reach it in the right location, there has to be this communication pathway between your eyes and your brain and where to reach your arm. And, you know, there's like a million things going on. And the way that you hold the apple with enough force, but don't crush it totally is because of all these, you know, touch receptors that are in your fingers. And obviously my point here is that just as it is with picking up an apple, the same is true when it comes to building a habit, which is there is a very vast overall system that is being used when these behaviors are going on. And so uh, to say that it's one thing that drives habits would be uh, incorrect, um, although it can be useful to isolate something in a discussion like dopamine so that you understand, oh, it's the anticipation that helps drive the behavior or something like that. So it could be informative, but it's not the whole story. Nice, nice. No, I love the I love the breakdown of that, and I, I like how you kind of touched on something that we'll probably go into in a little bit is is the environment. But I like how you sort of broke down earlier on, like how habits are formed from the environment sense. You know, like coming home, sitting on the couch in that same specific spot, turning on Netflix, and like having that routine built into built into us neurologically and just sort of like environmentally, um, I think is, is so important. It's, it's one of the reasons why I tell, I like tell couples all the time. Um, cause my, my fiance is a couples therapist and we do a lot of work with, with couples. It's like, don't argue in bed, no matter what you do, don't argue in bed, like literally get out of your bed and, and go and have conflict in a, in a different space. Because what can mm -hmm. happen is people will get into a habitual pattern of fighting in bed and it'll reduce intimacy. And so like, you'll see, you know, you'll, you'll see that when they get into bed, um, oftentimes like if they, if they've had this habit of arguing late at night or in bed when, you know, their decision-making abilities are down and their energy levels are down and their ability to cognitively process things are down. Um, it can be really impactful because what will happen is they'll start arguing and they'll start arguing, you know, once a week at night in bed, and then they'll start arguing twice a week in bed. And so what I usually say to couples is like, whatever you do, just make, make the rule, like make the law that you just don't argue in bed because it can kill intimacy and people will, will find themselves fighting more than they are, you know, <laughs> being intimate and having sex in bed. Um, and so, yeah, you know, there was an interesting study done that was somewhat similar to that. Mm -hmm. um, so they were working with insomniacs. 
And uh, the study asked insomniacs to, if you were in bed and you were just lying awake and you couldn't fall asleep, get out of bed. Don't basically, it's similar to what you say, don't argue in bed, don't lay awake in bed was the, the, um, the instruction. And so they would go sit on the couch or read a book or go anywhere else until they fell asleep. And then as soon as they were like getting tired, then you go to bed. And uh, essentially what they were doing was training their brain that sleep is the only thing that happens when you get into this space. And, um, and it helped a lot of them get over it. Very cool. Very cool. I knew, I know a couple of people and maybe a couple of people on listening to this podcast episode that, uh, that maybe can try that information, uh, try that, that sequence out. Um, okay. So I, I wanted to dive into the book. I want to talk about atomic habits and, you know, you, you break it down in the book in such a, um, such a tangible way. And so you've broken it down into laws and the first law is, is make it obvious. And I'm wondering if you can uh, sort of break this law down a little bit to give the listeners some context into why that's important and what we need to know about making our habits obvious. So to sort of set the stage here in the book, I divide a habit into four different stages. And I think if you understand those four stages, then you have a better chance of understanding what a habit is and how it works. And, uh, and then ultimately, uh, given the four laws of behavior change that you're mentioning here, how to change it. So you know, I, I won't go into the four stages in detail, but just very quickly, it's cue, craving, response, and reward. So there's, there's some kind of cue that catches your attention, like you see a plate of cookies on the counter. So that's a visual cue. There's a craving. There's some kind of interpretation of that. So that's that dopamine spike in anticipation that we just talked about. So you see the cookie and then you anticipate, oh, that'll be tasty. So the craving comes. That motivates you to act. There's the response, which is you pick the cookie up and you eat it. And then there's the reward, which is, you know, in this case, it's sugary, it's tasty, it's sweet, and so on. And um, so those four stages, cue, craving, response, reward. So from those four stages, we can come up with a law, one of the laws of behavior change for each stage. And so the one that you just mentioned is make it obvious. So this is related to the first stage. You want to make the cues that prompt your habits obvious, available, visible, easy to see. The more obvious the cue is, the more likely you are to act on it or the more likely it is to remind you to take action. So there are a variety of ways to do this. Um, one of my favorite examples is with a method that I call environment design. So the basic idea is you just restructure your physical or digital environment to make the cues of your good habits obvious and available. So uh, let's start with the digital environment. So like I, I have my phone and um, I removed all of the icons from the home screen on my phone. So it's just totally blank. And then I've got this, you know, this little home bar at the bottom where you can fit four icons. Well, I asked myself, like, what habits do I want to be building? Uh, what things do I want to make obvious there? And so for a little while, I wanted to build this reading habit. And I moved Audible and Pocket to that home screen. And I had texting and uh, the phone option as well. So the only thing that I saw as soon as I opened up my phone were these cues to read. And, uh, and that was a way of making it obvious for me to do the action that I wanted to do. So you remove those distractions and you put the obvious cue and uh, you put the cue that you want to act on in an obvious location. Now, you can do that not only for uh, your phone or for your desktop or whatever, but you can also do it for physical spaces. So, uh, for example... For, you know, forever, basically, I've, uh, since I was a kid, I've brushed my teeth twice a day, but I wouldn't floss consistently. Um, I would only do it every now and then. And I realized that one of the reasons I wasn't flossing is because the floss was tucked away in a drawer in the bathroom. And so I just wouldn't see it. I would, you know, brush my teeth and put my toothbrush down and I would forget to pull it out. And so 
I bought a bowl, a little bowl, and I put it right next to my toothbrush on the counter. And then I put the floss in that bowl. And so now I brush my teeth, I put the toothbrush down, I pick the floss up and it happens right there. It's just obvious. It's out there, uh, easy to see. And so I do it pretty much every day without thinking about it. And that was, that was really for that habit. That was really the only change I needed to make to stick with it. Hmm. Um, some other similar ones that I've noticed and, you know, uh, it's worth noting that all of the things that we'll talk about today, uh, all the examples that I'm giving, they can work for you or against you. And so it's important to understand how they work so you can design an environment that favors you rather than one that hinders you. So for example, uh, I've noticed something similar with beer. If I buy a six pack of beer and I put it in the front of the fridge, like if it's in the door or if it's right at the front of the, um, the shelf where I can see it as soon as I open it up, I'll grab one and drink one with dinner each night, basically just because it's there. But if I take that same six pack and I tuck it in the back of the fridge, all the way under the shelf where I can't see it when I open the door, then sometimes it'll sit in there for like months. Um, and so my question is like, well, did I want it or not? You know, like to a certain degree I did, but I, I did never want it bad enough to like reach an extra two feet underneath there and find it. And I think so many of our habits are like that. We respond to the cues that are obvious in our environment. You know, this is particularly true with the rise of technology and uh, modern um, society we're surrounded by cues now. You know, he's like, good luck driving to work for more than 10 minutes and not passing a fast food restaurant. The food is so abundant and visible and available that uh, we find ourselves eating more than we ever have before. And uh, a lot of that has to do with how obvious and available it is in the environment. So as best as possible, you know, you don't have control over all the environments that you encounter, but as best as possible, where you live, where you work, where you work out, restructure those spaces to make the cues of your good habits obvious, available, and visible, and the cues of your bad habits hidden and, uh, and less likely to be seen. Yeah. So interesting, man. You know, I think as you're, as you're talking, I'm like thinking about my habits and how my environment is set, is set up and, and conducive for those things or not conducive for those things. And, um, I love the beer analogy because that's, I think that's, that's a really, it's a really concrete example that I think a lot of people can can sort of do and, and implement. And I found the exact same thing. I remember last year I had uh, dry January and I had beer in the fridge. And I remember thinking to myself, if it's, I, I noticed within the first week or two that it's like whenever I opened up the fridge and the beer was just there and I could see it, it, it was like, oh, I want to drink that. And it was just like right there in my mind. And so I moved the beer um, I moved the beer to the back of the fridge where I couldn't see it and just like put it behind the kale, you know, and, and then I didn't think about it again. And then, you know, I think it was in, in March, uh, later on last year. And I was like, oh yeah, there, there it is. Like there's, there's that beer, but it was so interesting because I didn't think about it as, as something that could shape a habit. And so I, I love the way that you're describing this. Cause it's, this is a way to sort of design, like, do you recommend to people that they that they sort of take a look at their environment, especially their home, their apartment, I would imagine, and and really ask themselves whether or not it's conducive for the habits that they want, like working out? Like, how do we go about implementing this? Yeah, I mean, 100 percent. It's it's really the, the simple answer to how do you implement it is you want to reduce the steps between you and the good behaviors and you want to increase the steps between you and the bad ones. And, um, you know, there are a ton of ways to do this. So. The, the beer example is just one. And I also, I want to add here while I'm talking through some of these examples, you know, like in many cases, like in the flossing example I gave, a simple environment change might be all that you need uh, to stick with a habit. 
but it's not, you know, a perfect solution. Like if you're, if you're actually dealing with like alcoholism, then hiding the beer at the back of the fridge is probably not going to solve it. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to stack the deck in your favor. You know, you're trying to like redesign the environment so that it's nudging you in the right direction. And maybe one change isn't going to shift things. But if you do a dozen or two dozen, well, now all of a sudden you're living in this environment that's just like asking you to be more productive and healthy, right? So, um, you know, some other examples. Uh, I have a friend who is a musician uh, and wanted to learn how to play the violin better. So he's going to his violin instructor each week, but then he's forgetting to play uh, his uh, violin in between sessions. So he's not getting that much better. So instead, he set his violin stand right in the middle of the living room. So he would pass it 30 times a day. And lo and behold, he's picking it up and practicing for an hour each day, mostly because it's out there and he's never going to forget about it. Same thing with uh, another reader who played guitar. They would get back from their guitar lesson and put it in their closet in their bedroom. Well, you know, they got the closet door closed all the time. They don't see it. So instead, the new habit became, as soon as I walk in the door from my guitar lesson, I place my guitar in the guitar stand in the corner of the living room. So again, somewhere visible, you're going to see it a lot. And then on the other side, you know, if you want to curtail a bad habit, a lot of people feel like they watch too much television, for example, or spend too much time, you know, looking at the screen or watching Netflix. But if you walk into pretty much any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? Like they all face the TV. So it's like, what is that room designed to get you to do? It's the most obvious, available, visible thing in that space. So there are, and this maybe gives you a little idea of how to implement these ideas. There's a spectrum here for any of us, right? So you could take a chair and turn it away from the TV and have it, you know, put a book on the nightstand next to it or the, the end table next to it. You could take the remote control and put it inside a drawer and maybe put a book in its place. Um, you could get a wall unit or a cabinet and put the TV inside of that. So it's behind doors and you're a little less likely to see it. If you really wanted to be extreme, you know, you can take the TV off the wall and put it in the closet and only set it back up when you really want to watch it. I had one reader who she and her husband watched a ton of sport events, sporting events, and um, they found themselves saying, all right, we should get rid of our TV. So they took it out of the house and their new metric was if we don't care enough about this game to drive down the road and watch it at the local sports bar to just leave and go somewhere for 10 minutes, then we don't actually want to watch it. And, you know, of course, like I said, these are varying levels of extremity. But uh, the point here is that the less obvious this stuff is, the, the less likely you are to fall into it. And so like one that seems obvious to me, but many people uh, don't follow this is that don't have a TV in your bedroom. You know, like, I mean, if, if a TV is in your bedroom and your bed is the main thing you could sit on there, you're just asking for yourself to just lay in bed and watch TV for two hours. So there, there are a variety of changes here, but the core idea is put fewer steps between you and the good behaviors and more steps between you and the bad ones. Mm, I love that. I love that. Well, there's so many, I mean, there's so many different pieces of the book that we could dive into, um, you know, going, going through the different laws. We don't have a ton of time left. And so I'm wondering if you can pull out one of the other important pieces from the book, whether it's one of the laws or, or something else that you dive into outside of environments and some of these pieces that we've already talked about that, that you think would be really helpful for the listeners to know about habits. Yeah, sure. So, you know, obviously the book goes into all this in more depth, so it's going to have more uh, uh, context and examples than we can cover here. But there is another important one that I think we should talk about. So uh, let's talk about the third law of behavior change. So this is, uh, again, a reminder, cue, craving, response, reward. Those are the four stages. So the third law is about the third stage, the response, the, the habit itself. So the third law of behavior change is to make it easy. 
the easier, more convenient, frictionless your habits are, the more likely you are to perform them. You know, basically the simpler it is, the more likely you are to follow through on it. And I think the, the basic rule to follow that kind of keeps you in line here is what I call the two minute rule. So the two minute rule says you take whatever habit you're trying to build, whatever ambitious thing that you have in mind and scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat or read 40 books a year becomes read one page or, um, you know, write my book becomes write one sentence, something that takes two minutes or less to do. And sometimes when I say that people will resist it a little bit, you know, they're like, well, I know the real thing I'm trying to do is like actually work out. I'm not actually just trying to take out my yoga mat. And I understand why people feel that way. You know, you kind of think like, well, if it's a mental trick, why would I do it? But, uh, first of all, just getting started often creates this momentum that, that keeps you going. But if you feel that way, I would encourage you in the beginning to limit yourself to two minutes or less. So I actually had a reader who he ended up losing over hundred pounds. And one of the first things that he did was he went to the gym, but he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get in his car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, and then get back in the car and drive home. And it sounds silly to people. It sounds ridiculous. You know, it's like, that's not going to be the thing that gets you in shape. But what you realize when you step back and look at it is that he was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, right? He was mastering the art of showing up. And I think that this is a, a deep and maybe surprising truth about habits, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? You have to find a way to make it the standard in your life before you can worry about optimizing it and scaling it up. And if you can't become the type of person that drives to the gym and stays there for five minutes, then you don't have a chance to be the kind of person that does a workout for 45 minutes, four days a week. And uh, so I think, especially early on, especially in the beginning, it's important to use the two minute rule, automate that first movement, that first action, find a way to show up each day, even if it's just for a few minutes. And once you've done that, once you've proven your ability to be that kind of person, to reinforce that identity of, hey, I do go to the gym every day, or I do sit down and I write one sentence, or I do go over to the pillow and sit down and meditate for you know two minutes or whatever it is. Um, once you get to that point and you've proven your ability to show up, then you have a lot of options for upgrading and expanding from there. Nice, man. I love that. And I think that that is so applicable in so many ways. It's it's funny because it, <laughs> as you were describing that, I was kind of chuckling because I how I got in the habit of meditating, this is so unintentional. And as you were saying this, I, I was like literally had to mute myself because I was laughing. Um, but I would just leave my uh, meditation cushion in the middle of my living room. Um, and I, you know, I, I just kind of got used to, to, to sitting there at, at the end of the day at, at night. And so I would just leave it there. And what happened is, is like every morning, then I would start sitting on it uh, and, and meditating. And when my fiance and I moved in together, it was kind of funny because it was like this battle because I, I had a habit of leaving my meditation cushion in the middle of the living room <laughs> because it would, it would remind me to go sit down and meditate. And so we had to, uh, we had to adjust where the meditation cushion sat it's just so it was aesthetically appealing, but I think it's such a good example of like how I got in the habit of actually just meditating on a daily basis. And yeah, it's perfect. It's just like the musician who leaves the violin in the middle of the living room. Yeah. You know, like that was your, that was your craft. And it was reminding yeah, you. Yeah. So funny. Well, listen, James, this was phenomenal. And I just, um, I really appreciate the work that you're doing and the, and the way that you lay it out. It's, it's very simple, concise and straightforward. And I can imagine that, you know, I've, I've interviewed a few people on, 
you know, ideas around habits. And, and I would, I genuinely, genuinely believe that, that, um, out of everyone that I've talked to, you seem to get it in a way that really lands with me personally. And so thanks so much for the work that you're doing and, and for coming on the show and, um, and just for, for, for bringing this wisdom and knowledge and insight to the listeners. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad you are finding it useful. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to, to share the work. Yeah, man. And for everyone that's out there listening, definitely go and check out James's book. You can find it uh, on Amazon or on his site. Uh, it it's uh, You can go to jamesclear.com and check it out there. It's just Atomic Habits. You can Google search that. We'll have all the links for you in the show notes. Uh, don't forget to share this episode with a few people that are trying to work on or improve their habits, whether it's around their health or fitness or uh, around their business and just trying to get better time management, whatever it is, but share this episode with them might help them implement one of these things. Uh, Don't forget to leave us a rating and review. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm -hmm.